Well, good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Everybody good? Welcome, welcome. Glad you're here. Um, we are in, we're actually wrapping up um, our series, Walking Through the Book of Acts. This is week 25, so like a half a year. That's a long time to be in, in one place, but my hope is that um, it's, if you've been here, it's been, been an amazing series. It has been for me. I've learned a lot. Um, essentially, the book of Acts, if you don't know, if you're not familiar, it is the story of the early church and the expansion of the, the Christian church after the death and the resurrection of Jesus um, into that part of the world. And then, and obviously, we are a direct result of that, the early days of what we're reading. We sit here on this block as a direct result of Paul and Peter and the, the early apostles, their ministry. Right? We wouldn't be here without them. So just to kind of give context to you there. So we're wrapping up. We're, we're kind of tying a bow on this series today, uh, this conclusion. Um, it's a pretty dramatic one, um, as most stories do tend to go. This is, uh, we're, we're going to kind of walk through uh, uh, some of chapter 27 um, and, and 28. Um, we won't read the entire thing, um, so you can breathe a sigh of relief there. But we do want to... Um, we do want to give a fitting ending to this series. Um, so I want to start this way. Um, so Paul, we've been following Paul in his life and ministry um, since the early chapters of this book. And since he was saved in chapter 9, dramatically saved, right? Radically saved, transformed um, on his way to Damascus. Paul was a, a, an opponent of the Christian faith and, and ended up being uh, the greatest preacher besides not named Jesus, that ever lived. Um, he is responsible for uh, the majority of the New Testament, right? He wrote more of the New Testament than any other person, and he preached. He is personally responsible for more uh, people uh, coming to faith than maybe anyone who's ever lived, ever, besides Jesus himself. Obviously, Jesus is the core of our faith, but anyone not Jesus, Paul is like the man. So it's a dramatic turnaround. He, he became an amazing proponent of the gospel, a force to be reckoned with. And so this is kind of the end of, not the end of the story, but we're going to conclude the book, and then hopefully it'll kind of push you and, and spur you on to further study. So uh, Paul was a frequent traveler, right? We see, we, we've, we've kind of um, followed Paul on his, on his journey, and he was a frequent traveler on the high seas. Like they sailed a lot of places, and we've seen some of those places. So in the Hebrew, Jewish, ancient Hebrew way of thinking, I want to I call your attention to something that I, I've recently learned in the last year or two, but it just it, it hammers home this point. The vast waters of the oceans represent chaos and darkness. Many, oftentimes in the Bible, in Scripture, from cover to cover, you see God using chaotic waters to bring about some some grand purpose, if you if you, if you go all the way to the back the the, front, the very front of the Bible at creation, the Bible says the Spirit of God moved over the the the, the formless land, the waters, the chaos waters. It was chaos, and then God parted those waters. That was a precursor as well to Exodus fourteen. He parted those waters. The waters receded at God's word and. He parted the chaos and the, the darkness and, 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 and brought light and form and life through the chaos of just water, okay? So there, there's one. Gen Genesis 6, obviously, the flood, 
the flood narrative, talking about chaos. The water represented death and destruction and chaos and, and power that humans could not match up to, right? Exodus 14, the parting of the Red Sea, right? And Moses leads God's people through those chaotic waters to dry land, to their promised land. Psalm 93, David talks about the Lord being mightier than the mightiest waters, right? Water was, a, in, in the Jewish way of thinking, in the ancient Hebrew way of thinking, the, the depths of the ocean meant chaos and darkness and destruction for good reason. Ever been out on a boat? Way out. Deep sea fishing, anybody? Ever been in choppy water before where you thought you were, you're, you're going to capsize and, and you're not going to make it back? It's pretty powerful. The waters are powerful. They represent chaos. They represent a power, a force that we cannot handle on our own. We are at its mercy. Luke chapter 8, Jesus calms the water on the Lake of Galilee, right? And all the way toward the, to the end of the Bible, Revelation 4, it, it, there's a scene of heaven, a picture of heaven where it, it, it talks about a sea of glass. And this is important because the sea of glass is the water being calmed is finally at the end of all things when God has fulfilled his ultimate purpose and heaven and earth have become one and all sin and all death has been wiped away. What is it? A sea of glass. That means is representative of God finally calming the chaos waters. Isn't that cool how the ancient Hebrews kind of took the waters of the deep to, 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 bring, to um, parallel chaos and death and destruction and, and hardship? Well, Paul knew this very well. He sailed a bunch. And today we're going to look at um, a, a very chaotic situation on the high seas. See, all throughout the Bible, God uses chaos, chaotic water, waters, oceans, to bring order and to accomplish his purpose. So, <clears throat> first time I ever went deep sea fishing, went with my dad. I was probably 14, 13, 14. And a bunch of our family went and... and um, now, my dad had been many times before, but he's like, y'all going to love it. Well, my dad got sick on the way out there. And if you've ever been sick out at sea, raise your hand. Show of hands. you ever been sick? My friends, that is a sickness you will never, ever forget. My dad was curled up on a bench inside that boat the entire time we were out there fishing. He was sick. Sick, sick, sick. I was having a great time. I was like catching marlins. And, I don't know, catching marlins. I don't know what I was. I forgot what I caught. I caught some fish, I know. But I had a great time. But we hit, on the way out, we hit a little, some, some, some chop, right? And I'm like, whoa, this is awesome. Now, today, I'd be a little bit more, grab on to something. I'm way more cautious in my older age than I was. What is that about? Like, I would do stuff that could have gotten me killed as a teenager, Daredevil, doing all kinds of stuff. I, we, we, I lived out in the country. I grew up in the country, so four-wheelers and dirt bikes were the thing. And you remember three-wheelers? If you're old enough to remember three-wheelers, they are illegal now for good reason. Because you make a sharp turn on one of them suckers and you're gone. Flip that sucker. I mean, so I mean, we didn't, somebody didn't think that through, how that works. You make a sharp turn and you're over. Three wheels just doesn't match. But we, that's what we did. We, we, we jumped hills and flipped them and flew off of them. And 
I mean, we did all kinds. Nowadays, I'm like, I never dream of doing that. Never. It's like holding on for dear life. Whoa, don't, don't climb up that tree. You're going to fall out and break your arm. Like, that's, that's what I've become. But as, as, a, as a younger person, I didn't, I didn't think about the danger there, I guess. So when you're out at sea, say you're deep sea fishing, and, and you hit some waves, you hit some chopping, you, you know, you're at the mercy of those waves. You're at the mercy of, of whatever comes. You know, if, if a little storm comes up, you're at its mercy. And you're just praying that you make it back to land. Amen. Ever, anybody ever been on rough seas and you just prayed that you put your feet on the ground again? Amen. Right? You know, you know the situation. Well, today, the last two chapters of Acts are amazing. They're crazy. All kinds of crazy stuff happening. And, and, and we're going to focus on chapter 27 primarily. So if you'll turn with me to chapter 27. This is a sea voyage. This is a sea voyage. And now Paul took many voyages. But this one is special because this is the last sea voyage that he would take. The last. It was the final one. Now, if, if you know anything about popular uh, literature, ancient literature, the sea voyage was a, was, a, was a major genre, right? Anybody ever read the Odyssey or the Iliad? Um, in ancient Greek and Nordic and, and Roman culture, the sea, just like in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew culture, represented death and destruction and danger. Like, and so much stuff happened on the high seas. In fact, like in, in, in Greek mythology, um, the gods would punish and batter and hammer the humans on the high seas. If they, if they weren't being good humans, then the gods would come down and smite them. They might die, and if they survived, then that meant the gods were pleased with them somehow, and they were appeased, and they could go on about their life. But a lot of stuff happened on the high seas in ancient Greek and in Roman and Nordic mythology because people, the, the sea was, you know, the last frontier, they say. It was mysterious and deep and dark and cold and, and a lot of, you know, a lot, you can sink and drown and, and there's a lot of bad stuff can happen on the high seas. Well, the sea voyage is a popular literary genre in ancient, ancient antiquity, but what happens here is Luke, being the astute person that he is, he writes his own sea voyage story to counter the, the ancient mythological sea voyages. This sea voyage is different in that in the ancient ones, he knew that, that some Greeks, some non-Jews would have re read this at some point. And so what he did, interestingly enough, I, I, I was reading about this this week, interestingly enough, he, he wrote this down as a narrative, but it has a, it has a, it had a, a God-centered, holy purpose in it, but it's, all, it's a narrative. It reads like a storybook. It reads, reads like Herman Melville or something, like, or like watching Pirates of the Caribbean. It's like a, it's a, it's an adventure, right? And so Luke's sea voyage is different in that the God, a God, the one true God, instead of smiting the humans and wanting to kill them, God is benevolent and gracious, and he's seeking to save the humans, even the criminals on board with Paul, the, the Greek criminals who did not even believe in Paul's God, God was benevolent and gracious and he sought to save them. He sought to, he sought to rescue them. He didn't want to smite them. He wanted to rescue them. So this is a different sea voyage and, and Luke did that intentionally. So if you'll turn with me to, to Acts 27. 
We will read, we'll, beginning, we'll begin in, in reading in verse 9. So, so, so what happens to set this up is Paul has, if you were here last week or if you know anything about the story, Paul has been uh, stood before uh, Agrippa, King Agrippa, and he was released. Uh, you know, he might be crazy, but he didn't break any laws. Does that sound familiar to the Gospels, anyone? He might be crazy, but he's, he, he's committed no crime, right? G- there's a Jesus parallel all through Paul's life, and it's intentional, by the way. Scripture is intentional that way. It's not coincidental. It's intentional. He stood before Agrippa, and they let him go. And so now they're, they decided they were going to sail, finally sail to Italy. And so they board a ship, and this centurion, this Roman centurion named Julius, they were handed over to this guy, all the prisoners. Paul was a prisoner, as was Luke, who's writing this down. And then a bunch of random people that had committed crimes. They're on this boat, and they're about to sail for Italy. In verse 9, this is what it says. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. He's kind of the ultimate told you so, right? Verse 22, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of of all who sail with you. So keep your courage up, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Now he's like, good news, bad news. Like, we're going to live, but there's going to be a shipwreck. We're going to run aground. So get ready for that, you know, that item that's coming, right? Verse 27 On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed there was approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. 
A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. And in an attempt to escape, kick in coffee, kick in baby. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were lowering some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, that you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. And so watch this. Watch this. Something very interesting happens in verse 33. Just before dawn, Paul urges them all to eat. For the last 14 days, it's a long time to be caught at sea in a storm. 14 days. He said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread. He gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. So they're out here in this storm. They've been battered for days and days. There's many days they haven't seen the stars or the, or the, or the sun, right? Meaning it's overcast and stormy. But, in the, but something happens here. Paul urges them to eat, and he breaks bread. And this is so symbolic and parallel to the last supper that Jesus had with his friends before being arrested. He breaks bread, gives thanks to God, and they eat. Now, notice this. He does this in the middle of the storm. The storm is still raging. He does this in the middle of the storm. He doesn't wait till the storm is over. See, that's what you and I would do. What we would do is we would wait till we survived and, and made it to land before we gave thanks to God. Thank you, God, for getting me through that mess. Amen? Go on your merry way. No, Paul stops in the middle, at, I mean, in the middle of the night. He urges them to eat. Then he does something symbolic. He's literally uh, it, it, serving. It's almost like he's, he's, they're partaking in Holy Communion. Right in the middle of a raging storm. Think about this. How odd is that to us? It doesn't compute with us. See, he, he broke the bread and gave thanks in the middle of the storm. He didn't wait till it was over. And this right here is so symbolic and sacramental what Paul is doing right here. It, it's also drawing a parallel to Jesus, of course. We see this. I want to tell you something, friends. Um, First and foremost, storms, the storms of life are inevitable. Inevitable. See, what we think, what we think, in, our, in the back of our minds, we think that if we give our hearts to Jesus and we surrender to Jesus, then life somehow becomes easier for us. It's going to be some mostly smooth sailing. That isn't true at all, is it? That isn't true at all. You know, and, I, and I've, I've counseled um, a young um, <clears throat> new Christians before that said, Justin, I, I, yeah, 
I've almost got, you know, it, 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 not really, but like in their mind, they're going, I almost have buyer's remorse because I'm like, I love Jesus, yes, but I thought things were going to get easier for me. I thought life was going to become easier, more palatable. I didn't, I didn't expect all these storms to, to keep hitting me. I thought the storms were going to, I thought Jesus calms the storm. That's what I thought, that's what I read. I read that it's calm and peaceful and life gets better. Well, I would argue, folks, I would argue, folks, that life might get a little worse. I would argue in some ways life gets worse. This life. Are you following me? I would argue in some ways you're going to have the same storms that everybody else does. See, God, listen, that, that's not the way God works. You, some of you are older, you know this by now. But you younger believers, not younger is in age, just younger. Um, something I had to learn, uh, and it took me a long time to learn it, is that the storms of life are inevitable. There's a difference, though, in you going through a storm and someone who hasn't trusted in Christ going through a storm. The storms of life are inevitable. This was, it, he says this in John 16, 33, a very famous verse that we all know. He says, I've told you these things that you may have peace. In this world you will have what? Trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Storms are inevitable. And I would say that the storm kind of amps up a little bit the more, the, 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 the more as your faith grows. Now, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, there's nothing in me that wants to deter anybody from trusting in Jesus because it's the greatest thing you'll ever do. But I want you to know, if you think it's going to be easy, you, you're, we have to, we have to reality check. And, and because I think we face a battle on two fronts now, not just the external battle of the storms of life, not just hard circumstances, not just financial crisis, not just health concerns, not just uh, uh, um, heartache and breakups and, 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 and disappointments and failure, not just that stuff, but we have an internal spiritual battle going on as well. And this is where it really ramps up, right? And this is not to discourage you, but it's to draw a, a, a thick line and say, understand that the storms of life will still rage in the life of a believer. But here's, here's what I believe. If God is God, and he is over all things and sovereign, do you not think that God is in control of that storm that you currently are, 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 are right in the middle of now? Do you not think that God is, has allowed, at, at the very least, allowed it for his purpose to be fulfilled in your life? At the very least. Well, you might say, well, God is good. How could God create, make anything bad happen or create anything? That's, that's not, that's, we're thinking about it all wrong. Because God is loving and benevolent and gracious, the storms of life rage on. And the best part is that you don't go through that storm alone. That God will walk you through the storm and sometimes carry you through the storm. But you have a promise, just like Paul did. Paul had a promise that he was going to make it to Rome. It didn't matter how bad that boat rocked, he knew he was going to make it. And God told him, hey, everybody on this boat, you stay on the boat, you're going to live. Isn't that great? So we have a promise in the inevitable storms of life. The second thing is this. Storms are not detours or setbacks. The storms of life are not a detour. They're not, see, we think life is a straight line, and God's will is a straight line. And God couldn't, now this, this storm, this circumstance is just knocking me off my course. 
just like we said, I believe God is sovereign even over the worst storm. I believe that. And those of you who have lived enough life, you understand that too. It doesn't make God not good. It doesn't make God not loving to allow you to go through a storm. I believe, I believe life's storms are God's primary method in accomplishing his purpose in your life. It's not real encouraging on the surface, but I promise you it is. It's good in every way. Life's storms are God's primary method for accomplishing his purpose. The primary method, not the good times, but the crappy times. Can I say crappy? I'm so sorry. The hard times. That is God's primary vehicle for accomplishing his will. Just look through scripture. It can't be any other way. If God even God didn't even spare his own son. The worst storm anyone's ever been through is the storm of the cross. And God did not spare his own son. But guess what was accomplished? Life and resurrection for you and I. Can we get an amen to that? The greatest storm ever, ever anybody ever sailed through was Jesus Christ. And it accomplished God's great purpose for us. Storms are inevitable. And storms are not setbacks. You've got to see it through the eyes of God. They're not setbacks. They're not detours. God accomplishes his ultimate purpose through a storm. And, that, and you might say, well, I'm, life is pretty good now. Should I brace for a storm? Absolutely, you should. You should brace for a storm. It might not happen tomorrow. It might not happen next week. It might not happen two years from now. But eventually, we, we are born. We grow up. We grow older. We get sick and we die. So if nothing else, if nothing else, the storm of physical death is coming for every single person in this room. If nothing else, not just to you, but your loved ones. The storms are not detours. They are God's primary method to accomplishing his purpose. Why? Because when, to make it through a storm, a trial, a hardship, you've, you are forced to trust God. You can no longer trust yourself. You're forced to. It brings us to the end of ourselves, which is what God wants the most. What God wants the most is to get you to the end of you so that he can be him in your life. We reach the end of what we can do, and we have to fully rely on what he can do. I had no idea that, that um, this would be appropriate for this morning as I prepared, but I flew to Houston this week. I um, presided over the wedding of, of my good friend James Cook, <clears throat> who's somewhere down in paradise now on his honeymoon. But uh, I flew out on Wednesday of Atlanta and got to Houston, short flight. Um, and, and anybody knows me, I even, I, I, Emory, I, I went up to em, Emory Paramore, frequent flyer. He's a pilot. He's a pilot. So I, what better person to ask? And I was a little nervous, and I hadn't flown in a few years. And I, I, some people were standing around was like, what is he doing? I was like, Emory, how safe is commercial flying? And, you know, I've heard that you're safer in the air than on the ground, but I don't believe that. Like, tell, give me some encouragement. He's like, oh, it's real safe. And when Emory says, I'm like, oh, thank you. You know, I trust you. I trust my friend. So Emory's like, oh, it's, it's safe. I mean, of course, he flies all day, every day. I mean, almost. I mean, so what, what am I scared of? So I get to the Atlanta airport, and I'm thinking 737, because I like the big planes, because they're, they're a little more stable in the air. 
I get there, and I look out the window, and I see what I can only be described as a puddle jumper. You know what I mean? A little small plane. I like a little small. I like 35, 40 passengers, something like that. I was like, oh, no. I'm going to feel every gust of wind. And on takeoff and landing are the two times that you're like, whoa. You're in there, you just, it's, you know, the breeze. But the landing was a little dicey. I'll just tell you that. Not to the pilots or anyone else that flies frequently, but for me that rarely ever flies, I'm like, oh, I'm like audibly like every time the, the plane drops and it goes like this. Because it, it's a smaller plane. I don't like those smaller planes. I don't like that. And, and Emery, I'll tell you, I love you and I trust you. But if you ever tell me to go up into like a prop plane, like two-seater, no way. I like my feet on the ground. And so I did land. Obviously, I'm standing here. But interestingly enough, I had this thought. And, and obviously, you know, I, I um, coming back on Friday, um, I don't know if this has ever happened to anybody, but my, my, my plane was supposed to leave Houston at 2.45 p.m. Got there at about lunchtime. I was going to take my time. I was going to board that plane and get home. Well, we got on the plane, 2.30 or so, and then we sat there for like 45 minutes. And then a little ding, ding. Pilot comes on and says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we do apologize for the, i got to use my, can I use my pilot? Ladies and gentlemen, we apologize, but there is some uh, a technical issue, small technical issue with the plane. We are working on that plane. We will get you up and running and in the air as fast as we can. Thank you. That's pretty good, right? Is that all right? Okay. That's what it sounded like to me. He's like way too close to the microphone. Way too close like this. And so I was like, great, you know small issue. It's never a small issue. If we're not in the air, it's not a small issue. It's not a small issue. It's like, oh, great. You're lying to me, but it's okay. Wait another about 30 minutes and another ding. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we do apologize. We're going to have to go back and dock because the maintenance team is going to have to come on and look at the issue. Great. So we deplane. First time that's ever happened to me. It's unnerving. Anyway, I'm already nervous. So a deplane. Wait an hour. They come on and say, it, the, uh, the bathrooms are not functioning. There's no power in the bathrooms. And we don't feel comfortable taking an hour and a half flight to Atlanta. I was like, we've been sitting here for two hours with no bathroom. We could have already been home by now. And people are getting irate. There's a screaming baby. And I'm like, oh. I mean, it's like the ultimate, like, no. This can't be happening. And so about 45 minutes later, time goes by. We, we can't fix the issue. We're going to find another plane. So who knows how long that's going to be. We've got to find another crew. We've got to find some, some, some you know, um, the flight crew and, and the stewardesses and all that stuff. Okay, so we're waiting. Finally, at about 8 p.m., yep, flight was supposed to take off at 2.45. Finally, about 8, we are ready to board. We got the original issue fixed on, the, on your plane. I don't want to fly that plane. I don't want to get on it. No, thank you. And I'm, I'm, I'm literally like my dad's a frequent flyer, and I'm calling him up. Should, can you book me another flight out of here? Delta, not United. Sorry, you're not any United people. I was like, Delta, Delta man. Like, uh, he's like, no, well, probably too late. There's nothing available. And I'm like, oh. So I do trust. I don't trust, but I did trust enough to get on the plane. And we eventually took off, and we made it back to Atlanta about 1030, 
10.45 at night. So what is the moral of that story? Well, the reason I say that is because while up in the air on the way back, I'm literally working on this message and praying over it. And I said, this is, you know, it's not really a storm, but I'm at the mercy of this pilot. I'm at the mercy of this malfunctioning aircraft. Nothing I can do to save myself. There's nothing. And luckily we weren't like riding through a storm or anything because that would have been much worse on my, my anxiety. But it was, it, I mean, it was clear. But I thought to myself, I, I can't save myself. This is essentially like a storm because I'm, I'm real nervous and there's already stuff going on. I just want my feet to touch the ground. Now, obviously that happened. But I, had a, I, I drew a parallel in my mind and my heart to this passage Paul knew very well that he could not save himself, himself in, this, in this situation. Only Almighty God was going to do that, right? But he knew his life was in God's hands. That's the other thing here. In the middle of a storm, God, you're in God's hands. He had a promise that he was going to make it to where? To Rome. He knew he was going to make it there. Didn't know how. He might be floating on a piece of wood, but he was going to make it there. His life would be spared in the lives of everybody sailing with him. That was God's promise. Weathering the storms of life requires trust. Requires trust. And so in verse 39, they finally reach land in dramatic fashion. This is kind of the shipwreck version of this um, uh, portion of this story. This is what it says, verse 39 in chapter 27. When daylight came, they did not recognize land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. They were hoisted, they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken into pieces by the pounding surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent them any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life because he had found, Paul had found favor with this centurion Julius. So he, he wanted to spare Paul's life, so he kept him from carrying out this plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. What Father God wants most from his children, you and I, is to trust him. That's what, what God wants most. God, what God wants most is trust. He wants you and I to trust him fully. And trust is built up in the storm. It's not built up in great times. You don't trust God and follow God, follow Jesus closer without a storm. You don't. You don't grow without a storm. You don't become more like Jesus in the image of Christ without a storm. You don't. You just don't. The good times don't make disciples. They don't. The hardships make disciples. And they're inevitable, my friend. They're inevitable for me and you. And so what I do is I embrace the Lord Jesus in the middle of the storm. He says, hold on to me. Hold on to me, Jesus. Hold me. Hold me through the storm. Now, they did eventually make it to Rome. And in chapter 8, chapter 28 is, cru chapter 28 is crazy, by the way. Um, you should go read it by your, for, uh, for yourself later on. We're not going to read it this morning. 
but it's a truly amazing conclusion to this book. It's the climax. See, the sea voyage was always the beginning of the climax of the story in ancient literature, and, and this is no different. In chapter 28 alone, this is what happens. They reach Malta. Malta was the, the island that they crashed on, right? He was bitten by a poisonous snake, a viper, it says, and he, it, the viper was like dangling from his arm, and they all went, <gasps> and Paul looks down, shakes the snake off into a fire, literally, and the Bible says he suffered no ill effects. Miraculous. Then Paul goes around and heals everybody he can come in contact with. There's one, one person that was suffering from disease and dysentery. He healed them, and that person went and told, and a bunch of people came, and they healed a bunch of people while there on Malta. And they finally sailed for Rome, and Paul stayed there two years, boldly preaching and teaching the gospel as he did everywhere he went. He would eventually go before Caesar, and he would eventually, ultimately, give his own life for the gospel, just like Jesus. Paul would, would be thrown in prison one final time and put to death for the sake of the gospel. He knew he was facing that. He knew it. That storm that they went through for 14 days out in the middle of the Adriatic Sea, that was nothing compared to what was coming. He knew. He knew that death was coming. It's both symbolic and literal, the storm. Both symbolic in life and literal. And he completed the task for God's purpose. See, most importantly, God's purpose was fulfilled in Paul. Aren't you glad God's purpose was fulfilled in Paul? Without Paul, this church doesn't exist, and any other church that, that claims Christ does not exist. We are direct descendant of, what, of Paul's ministry. Aren't you glad Paul didn't die in the middle of the Adriatic Sea? Aren't you glad that the storm didn't overtake him, that God fulfilled his promise? Because we, are, we sit here because of that. We sit here able to thank God in the middle of whatever storm you're going through because of this storm here. Aren't you glad that the greatest storm anyone ever walked through, the cross, Jesus didn't give up on that and say, it's too hard. Aren't you glad Jesus went through that storm for you and for, for me? Listen, it puts our storm in perspective, first of all. Whatever, whatever storm you're going through, it puts it in perspective. Paul said in Romans 8, 28, I love this, this is a memory verse. It says, we know all things uh, uh, work together for the good of those who love God. And who are called according to what? His purpose. His purpose, not ours. You can imagine living out, Paul living out these words as he went through all these, these trials and storms. Having the faith in God that he was going to make it and yet wondering how God was going to accomplish it. Right? God will fulfill his purpose. Nothing can get in the way of that. No storm, no hardship, nothing. God is going to fulfill his purpose. But the primary method, the primary way that God fulfills his purpose is through the storm through trials and hardship. I want you to know that. And we should brace for impact by trusting in, in, in Christ. We should brace for impact by trusting that my life is in God's hands and not my own, right? You and I can't save ourselves, but God can. And God is mighty to and willing to save. Amen? God's presence is an anchor in the storm. God's presence is an anchor in the worst storm, trust and obey. There is no other way. I'm going to call those who are helping with serve communion. Come on up, and we're going to get ready to come to the table. And I, I love going back to Paul breaking bread in the middle of the storm. He broke bread, he gave thanks, and they ate. And I, I want you to know something. This this is important. 
Sometimes we think, the way I grew up kind of thinking about communion, sometimes we think that we have to be clean or, or tidy in our lives to come to the table, don't we? We think we have to clean ourselves up or not, and things need to be going well. We need to be holy enough to come to this table. No way. In fact, the best time to come is in the middle of the storm. The best time to come to the table is in the middle of life's storm. Amen? Listen, this is, Paul did this in the, in the middle of the worst circumstance that anyone ever, I can, can you imagine him trying to essentially serve Holy Communion when the ship rocking like that and him taking on water? This is how we come to the table, friends. We come to the table as we are with storms and all, and we lay the storm at the feet of that cross. We lay the storm at the feet of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you that you are going to use every storm, every circumstance to accomplish your will. Your will will not be undone. You will not be defeated by some storm in, in the life of your children. In fact, it's the opposite. You're, you're going to accomplish your great purpose through the storms of this life, the, the, the storms that we go to. And Father, forgive us for not trusting you in the storms that we currently are walking through in life. Forgive us. Give us, give us the faith that we don't even possess right now to trust you. We thank you that the storms, although inevitable, the storms will ultimately fulfill your purpose in our lives. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. The gospel is a great storm with a great ending that the, that the sea it will be calmed. It will become a sea. Uh, uh, the choppy water will become a sea of glass. And it may not happen in this life, but it will for sure happen in eternity. And that's what we cling to. We love you so much. In your name we pray.